you've made your way there, we're going to pause and pray. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we recognize in this moment that we approach you, we approach this book only through the blood of Jesus, and that as he cleanses and washes, Lord, we thank you for your patience in this ongoing process. Pray that you would drive us further into your will and into holiness. Pray that you would take this word and feed our souls. Pray that you would be our teacher. Pray, Lord, that you would spring forth from these pages to give to your people what only you are equipped and able to give to your people. That is words of life. So let it be done now in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, Andy told you the will of God last week. So I'm just going to remind you and then we'll be done. No, not quite. We are going to press further in. And I hope what you saw last week was that the will of God is not mysterious, right? That the will of God has some very specific overarching ideas that apply to all of our lives, no matter how the specifics of them play out. The will of God can be known. Uh, the will of God can be, therefore, obeyed. And uh, the will of God can even be enjoyed. I think sometimes we miss that aspect of it. But as we've made clear, as Paul's made clear through this whole letter, his whole mission with the church at Thessalonica, uh, his whole desire is God's will for them. And, and there's nothing better. There's, there's no clearer direction. There's no better mission statement that you could muster up except that to make known to them the will of God is their continual growth in holiness, their continual becoming like Christ. So when we see in our Bibles in verse 3, this is the will of God, our ears should perk up and our pins should come out and these things should get underlined. And maybe you found yourself being disappointed by that. Like, that's really not what I wanted as far as the will of God for my life. I wanted something more specific. I would like the will of God for my life to be that I be healthy, wealthy, and beautiful, free from pain and suffering and all that sort of thing. But it's my sanctification? That's not that exciting. But it is. But it is, if you have a heart that has been born by God's grace into a, a new heart, a new creation, it's filled with his spirit, then your desire is God. And, and you begin to learn and know that everything that he desires for you is good. Even in the midst of such a world that we live in today, his will always for his people is for good. And we can trust in that and enjoy that and follow that because God sovereignly reigns over all things so that we can trust that in the midst of the world and in the midst of everything, Romans 8, 28 says, everything, in everything, God will work for your good and your good 
is the will of God to do. And therefore, the will of God is your sanctification. That's your good. And so, if God is not God, then the growth that he promises or the revealing, the doing of his will in our lives cannot be trusted. We can't look forward to being more Christ-like tomorrow than we were today. We can't trust that promise in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If God is not sovereignly reigning and acting and willing according to the counsel of his own will, then we cannot trust or hope in those things taking place. But since he is, we can look forward to enjoy and hope on those things. And even understand that all the things that happen to us or that we do, God will use according to his will for our sanctification, our growth, which is a great peaceful assurance to me, as I hope it is to you. Sometimes we don't even realize that everything that God uses for our good means everything. It means even in your own sin, God will take that and he will direct it for your good. Either teaching you in further sanctification or correcting you or rebuking you. But he will use it for the good of his children. He'll use it as an opportunity to shape you and to mold you according to his will. But more specifically, here in chapter 4, after we have the will of God revealed, our sanctification, Paul gets really specific about what that looks like. In essence, what we should not do in following the will of God for our lives. And he dives in here to the fact that we should abstain from sexual morality, control our body, not be a slave to the passion of lust like the Gentiles who are characterized by the fact that they don't know God. And that becomes important in our sanctification because if we know God, then we know how to walk. We know where to walk. And the last time that I was with you, I made very clear that the, the way that we know how to walk and to please God is the fact that we have his word which reveals who he is, what he does, what he commands. We have the Gospels, the biographical sketch of the perfect pleasing of God in a human life. Jesus. And Jesus doesn't look like this. Jesus has complete control of his body and he uses his body in a very specific way. Which is contrary to the way that men and women use their bodies. He uses it according to the will of God. And what Paul's getting at here is, if you want to use all your faculties, all your members, uh, in the center of God's will, then don't do this. Because this is not God. And it may seem odd or just kind of sudden that he 
jumps into the whole sexual immorality idea, but if you understood the ancient world in which he's writing, you would understand that it, it may be more uh, upfront and, and rampant with this sort of immorality than we even see today. I've even uh, read several things and had several people explain that it would be hard for us to walk our children down the street in some of these ancient cities for the things that they would see. It would be more even than they see today. And as slavery, household indentured servitude was, was part of the Roman Empire way of life, those servants became objects for the master's house and whoever he invited into it. It was normal, so to speak, according to culture, to use their bodies in a certain way, to not treat them as gifts and tools from God, to use according to his will for his glory and for our good. That was not the idea of what the body was. And so Paul makes clear, and if, and if you think about those sort of sins, as we'll think about here in 1 Corinthians 6 in a minute, uh, they are very visual. And it becomes a great distinction between those who follow the way or Christians in the ancient world when they don't behave like others behave. When they go into a household and hospitality, ancient world says, here, here's which one of my servants would you like to take to bed with you? When they say no, when they abstain, when they engage in loving uh, marital relationships that reflect the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When they care for their own bodies and when they, uh, you know, don't just put prohibitions on themselves, but when they jump into the fullness of what it is to live according to the will of God and display the goodness of that in relationship to these people who have no idea why they're doing what they're doing or not doing what they're not doing. It becomes a huge way to notice the church. And it's seen as some as a aroma of death, a way to prohibit prohibit themselves and gain nothing from it. But to those who are being saved, it's the aroma of life. It's the aroma of Christ. They see this and they recognize the goodness of it. And they give glory to God. Notice what Paul says about this sin in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
something becomes extremely different about all of our existence when we find ourselves in Christ. We become joined to his body. We become members of that body. And we recognize that Christ was the holiest man, God-man. We recognize every bit of his life was without sin and completely pleasing to the Father. And we recognize that his body was used according to the will of God at all times. It was never joined into anything else but the will of God. And so when we become Christians, our bodies get used much the same way. To God's glory. They're his. We are his. He bought us with a price, and that price was the body of his son. Jesus gave himself to us in love. Therefore, why would you give yourself to anything else but him in anything else but love. And there you see the fullness of what God desires the world to see as he's created the flesh in two distinct ways, male and female. He brings those together in a way that displays something deeper and greater. We become the metaphor for his gospel. And when I counsel people who are preparing to be married, we make that point, right? That we are the metaphor. We are the illustration for his gospel. So the distinction or the, the, the clarity in our sexual ethics and in our position or the Bible's position on marriage, which was established by God himself, is such so that the gospel is illuminated is illustrated. It's, it's not for the uh, uh, God's a party pooper or God's a prude or whatever you want to call it. No, it is God is completely good. And he wants to not only give you good, but he wants to display to the world what's good. So when we press into the will of God, we have to start with that foundation that he's good. So when Paul says you abstain from these things, you don't do these things, you, you don't become a slave like this, you know God. Therefore, you know it's good. So we left off in verse 5 and picking up in verse 6. Uh, you don't do this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Matter, of course, being the sexual immorality. Notice how important the family relationship becomes to Paul, that our, our love, our looking out for one another, uh, uh, comes from our love for God and his love for us, and it moves out horizontally to our brother and sister. We treat the family of God a certain way, like we treat all image bearers a certain way, all image bearers of God. It becomes very clear on how the family is to behave. And we just read from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians had a problem with sexual immorality within their members. Which means what from the passage we read? That they're taking Christ and they're bringing him into the type of immorality that never characterized who he was. Therefore, they're tarnishing the name of Christ. They're throwing mud on it and they're making it appear as something other than it is. 
So when a, when a modern church relaxes on their sexual ethic, they are disobeying the will of God to grow them into Christ's likeness, and they are destroying any gospel presence that existed amongst them. They're, they're not helping people. They're not being loving. They are throwing away all the good that God gave them to enjoy and to display. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. There's a correlation here when it talks about the Lord being an avenger in regards to sexual immorality within the body, within the church. We understand from Paul's discussion on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians that if, if you are to take these elements which represent and memorialize the body of Christ in any other way but a pure and holy way, he says some of you are sick because of that. Some of you have even died. Why? Because the Lord will not allow his body to be tarnished or treated in such a way. Now that you are a Christian, you are his body. And what do you think the Lord's going to do with his body? You think he's going to bring it into uncleanness? You think he's going to join it to anything other than what has been made holy through his love? No. And so he will avenge these things. He does not put up with how we treat one another, especially in regards to this type of sin. It's a, it's a terrible thing to read that the Lord is an avenger. Who has any more power than him? Not just power to discipline you, right, in this life, which is actually for our good, but for those that are not his, right? He has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. No one else has that power or authority. I heard Alistair Begg this week in one of his messages describe God in, a, in an, Eng, an old English type of sense with the word terrible. He's a terrible God. Not meaning that he's just an awful no good God, but that he can be terrifying in his wrath and his justice. It says in Deuteronomy 32 that vengeance is mine, that he'll repay the guilty and the evil and the wicked. And so don't take lightly how he treats his body. For to take his body into uncleanness is to welcome the wrath of God upon you. And apparently this is something that Paul told them before. This was part of his regular teaching because as I mentioned, the culture is replete with such sin. And we are called out of the world. We make distinctions that dis display the glory of God. And so Paul warns them, you no longer walk like this. You no longer walk like this. The will of God is your holiness, right? Verse 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. If, if there's a new creation, as we read in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, if, if, if 
Christ had to die for us, if he had to take our place, if, if we were by nature children of wrath, right? If, if that's who we were, then why would he die to save us, bring us into his family to keep us going in the way that we did? If our lives were characterized by such sin that it, that it was welcoming the wrath of God and Jesus uh, pardons us from that by his blood, why would he allow that to continue in our lives? And the answer is simple. He wouldn't. He doesn't. He reproves those whom he loves. He disciplines his children like a father does a son whom he loves. And so one of the great takeaways that we're understanding from the discipleship uh, theme that's taking place in chapters 3 and 4 is that we are to walk in holiness. God is making a royal nation, a holy priesthood of believers. We are to be revealed with him at the end of time on the great and awesome day of the Lord, revealed in glory. If we're revealed in glory with him at those last days, we will not be characterized by the things that characterize the flesh here and now. There is glory that only exists from God. It's pure, it's holy, it's undefiled, it's righteous. And if that is going to be what characterizes us on the last day, then all these things will have passed away. God is about, in the, work, in the, in the lives of his children, removing from them every stain and blemish and imperfection which would make them unpresentable as the pure bride to his son. He's bringing him a great and awesome gift, a people under his name, characterized by the power of his spirit working within them that causes them to walk in a new way, to walk in his way, and to completely exemplify what it means to be God's sons and daughters. And God will give that to Jesus on the last day. And so are we content to accept our get-out-of-hell-free card and move on with our lives in the way that we are used to walking. And by the way, let's go a step further. So, uh, sexual immorality is, is not the only thing we have to watch out for. It becomes visible at times. Some of you hide sexual sin. Some of you are hiding it now. But you're not hiding it from the Lord. You're not going to be a Pharisee who Jesus correctly identified as those who were whitewashed tombs. They cleared uh, the outside, but inside was death. He knows what's in the heart of men. He's made that very clear. But also recognize this, that he's a God of mercy. We were just looking at in Sunday school uh, this morning that he's, uh, what Ephesians 2 says, he's rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. He's existing in that way. 
He knows every vile and filthy thing you've ever done, thought, saw, whatever. He knows. And in light of that, he's being rich in mercy to those who seek him, to those who repent, to those who believe. But there's more, like I said, there's sins that nobody knows. Maybe you don't even know. There's pride. There's an attitude of worthiness when you are completely unworthy of his love. There's an attitude, there's an arrogance that you may have. Thinking that you're something that you're not. Or that you deserve God. You deserve the glory that he bestows on people by his mercy. There's all manner of sin. And one thing I I love about some of you is, uh, some of you are people that I seek to imitate as you imitate Christ or as you follow Christ. And yet you come to me week after week and you tell me that the Lord has uncovered things within your heart that are sinful, that, that are really deep-seated things. And they would seem minor to most of us, but you are so in tune with the will of God for your sanctification that you understand the slightest uh, imperfection in your heart is, is not becoming of what it is to follow Christ and you want it gone. That is glorious. Some of you who come to me like that are in your 70s, 80s. And you're repenting day after day because you recognize what? You're not glorified yet. It's sure, it's promised for you if you've been born again by the grace of God. But it hasn't happened yet. And I think that's Paul's reminder for the Thessalonians in this whole letter is, is, guys, we're moving in that direction. There are things that are going to attempt to take you away from that, from moving in that direction, but stay the course. And this is how you stay the course. And this is me, Paul, praying for you to stay the course. Oh, and by the way, at the end of this letter, he reminds them God's going to do it. And so we have every confidence in, in the world, in the whole universe, to continue on the path. We have the promise of, of a celestial city, of a heaven with God in Christ. And that's why I would encourage you to listen to our podcast tomorrow, because the Pilgrim's Progress that we cover is, is such a picture of this. The, the, the road, the narrow way, the walk, the temptations, the trouble, the forgetfulness, the sin. And yet Christian makes it to the city. He's been invited. He's gone through the gate. He's been sustained. And he's made it. And when he gets there, who's he praise? Not himself. He didn't win the championship not holding a trophy he's praising God and if you look at the scene in heaven in Revelation what are we doing there what is everyone doing there even those uh, celestial figures the seraphim and the cherubim what are they doing they're praising God so when we make it 
we recognize God did it. And because God sovereignly reigns and he enacts his will as he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, if you are his, if he's given you a new heart and the down payment of his spirit and sealed you in such, then you will grow. You will. And part of the trouble sometimes that we have is like, well, I just keep stumbling and I just keep falling and I keep watching this on my computer or I keep saying that with my mouth or I keep doing this with that person. And part of our growth is recognizing that the Holy Spirit has put us under that conviction to recognize, yes, that is not the way. This is the way. So take heart if that's where you are. I keep struggling. I keep falling down. I keep suffering with this thing. If you recognize that that is not where God wants you, grab hold of his mercy by his grace and the power of his spirit and, and lean on brothers and sisters and look to Jesus. The, the exhortation that I gave you at the end of the, the last sermon I preached on discipleship in verses 1 and 2 is look to Jesus, listen, and follow. Look to Jesus, listen, and follow. And I, and I use the illustration that we love to use with Mary and Martha, and Martha's doing dishes, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary is preparing to do the dishes in a way that glorifies God. I fully believe that. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's looking at him. She's listening to him. And she's going to get up and she's going to, in love, serve God and serve her sister and the rest of the household by doing the dishes in a Christ-like manner. Not from a legalistic standpoint where she's just trying to serve uh, morality's sake. But she is doing so to serve somebody, to please somebody, which is God, and to love her sister or her brother that's the way we must walk. And so it's not about just stopping doing something. Yeah, if you're doing it, please stop. But why? Why would I stop that thing? And if the love of God reigns in your heart, it will become very clear. Because I want him more than I want this thing or this moment. And that you will receive. If that's what you want, it's yours. And that's his promise. And so as we take a few moments here to respond to the Lord, use these to repent if you need to, to cry out and grab hold of his mercy, ask him for help, and you will receive. And then we'll stand and sing.